Now, would you take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me, please, to the book of Romans. We're going to look at the last few verses in chapter 3. There are a few teachings of the Bible which are found so incomprehensible to unregenerate man as that of justification by faith. Now, why is that? Well, it's because man likes to think of himself as capable of making at least some contribution toward his acceptance by God. It's humiliating and uh, irksome to his self-esteem, his ego, to think of himself as a helpless sinner in need of a Savior, in need of having his sin forgiven by the shed blood of another. Unregenerate man resists that kind of teaching. As an example of that, I brought with me this morning a paragraph written by a religious leader of a nomination, that denomination that will remain nameless. His name is uh, Dr. John W. Graham. I believe he is dead now. He knows better than what he's written here at this point. But this is what he writes. The evangelical doctrine of atonement, as I am using the word historically, ascribed the salvation of mankind here and hereafter to their annexing for themselves, even while yet sinful, the infinite merits of the crucified Redeemer, whose shed blood was regarded as the equivalent in the divine sight for the sins of the world. This doctrine most people now find incredible, unspiritual, and even immoral. And so even religious people who are unregenerate find the doctrine of Christ's shed blood for the sins of mankind to be um, something to be resisted, is distasteful to them. The simplicity of the message of salvation by faith alone is offensive to our cultured, educated, proud world. Its response from the work, its response to the gospel message apart from the work of the Holy Spirit is not unlike that of the Corinthian intellectuals who called the simple message that Paul preached foolishness or moronic. The text that we have before us today underscores, however, the simplicity of the gospel message. It is key to biblical teaching, this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Perhaps with the Jew in mind, Paul poses three basic questions in the text, Romans 3, verses 27 through 31. You see, they reacted to the simple message that he preached, race, good works, the possession of the law. These were very important to the Jews. With them in mind, the apostle writes these words as he concludes this introductory section dealing with salvation. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith, a principle of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified 
by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, if indeed God is one. And he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. <clears throat> and so the three basic questions which the apostle thinks that a Jew might ask are these. Where then is boasting? Is God the God of Jews and Gentiles? Do we nullify the law through preaching justification by faith? Now, it may be difficult for us, since most of us are Gentiles, to appreciate the significance of those questions. But I hope as we look at them today that we will find some practical applications for our own lives. And we'll be able to put ourselves, in some respect, into the Jewish mindset as we ask them. The first question is, where is boasting then? You see, the Jews boasted of their self-sufficiency, of their privileges, their law-keeping. And then along comes this apostle, so-called, who preaches a gospel which condemns man and closes the mouth of every man so they cannot boast before God. The Jew prided himself in those things that were especially Jewish. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, the apostle suggests this when he says, If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, and so on. You see, that's how the, the Jew regarded himself. He was Jew, whereas everybody else who was non-Jew was goyim, nations, Gentiles, nothing. But he was Jew, and he knew God, and he had the law, and he boasted about those things. That's why the question, what happens to boasting then? Well, lest we think that there is no place at all for boasting, let me assure you that the Bible does give us some things to boast about. I'm going to suggest three of them this morning. The list is not complete by any means. But let's look quickly at three things that we may rightly boast about as Christians. There is a place for boasting. The first one I want to look at is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The worldly Corinthians regarded themselves above that which they should have. And so to remind them of their roots, the apostle says in verse 26 in chapter 1, Consider your call, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, 
and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify things that are, that no man should boast before God. He says, dear people, let me remind you of your lot. You see, God hasn't chosen many who are wise. I don't say any, but it says not many who are wise or who are strong. But he says, on the other hand, God has purposely chosen the weak and what the world considers foolish and base and despised. Yes, those things that the world says are nothing. The nobodies. He says, God has chosen those people to be his saints so that no man should boast before God. In verse 30, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now when the apostle writes that last sentence, he's thinking of a passage in Jeremiah. So let's turn back to the prophet of Jeremiah in the Old Testament and look at the whole text. It's in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Well, you destroy the things that most people boast about in that one verse. Whether it's intellectual capacity, one's degrees, his scholarship, etc., or his might, his uh, power in the corporation, or his physical might, or his uh, riches, the money, the bank account, the things he owns, the material things he possesses, those are the things that people brag about, aren't they? Well, God says, let not a man boast in any of these things. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. What may we rightly boast in? Not what we are, not what we possess, but we may boast in the Lord. We may boast in him and who he is and what he's done. If you're going to brag about something, don't brag about yourself. Brag about the Lord. Secondly, we may boast, according to Galatians chapter 6, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 12, of this last chapter of the book of Galatians. It says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. What's he talking about? Well, there were some false teachers who were trying to 
seduce the Galatian believers away from the simplicity of justification by faith. And part of their doctrine was, well, yes, you need to believe in Christ, but you also need to keep the Jewish rite of circumcision. Faith alone is not enough. You must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Then you will be accepted by God. Then you will be justified. Earlier in the book, the apostle calls that kind of teaching another gospel. It's not the gospel of Christ at all. And he says that these false teachers want to cause you to go through that rite. They want to brag about you being added to their numbers. But then he says, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross to these other people was an offense. But Paul says, I boast in the cross. You see, the cross is offensive to the world because it implies three things. It implies a man is a sinner. It implies that he is under the just curse of the law for his sin. And it implies that he can do nothing to save himself, that he can only receive God's provision for his sins. That's why the cross, the preaching of the cross, is such an offense. You can talk about Jesus being a great teacher, being the moral example that all of us should follow, and nobody will ever lift a, an a, accusing word against you. They will pat you on the back and say, My what a marvelous teacher and preacher you are. But the moment that you try to share the cross of Jesus Christ, you put yourself in the place of persecution because the cross slays the pride of man. It means that man is helpless to save himself and all he can do is call out for mercy from God. The apostle says, I boast in the cross if I'm going to boast in anything. He says these Judaizers... That was the name applied to these false teachers. He says they want to add you to their number so they can brag about you. <clears throat> when I read about them doing that, I'm reminded of those people today that brag about the numbers of converts that they have or the numbers who have been baptized this last year in their church. In fact, I used to receive a newspaper that listed the uh, churches that had baptized over 200 people during that year. And I know some of the people uh, who pastored those churches, they would do anything to get on that list for the fame and the acclaim of being announced by that, that publication as having over 200 baptisms. I know in one church the organist was baptized three times. Then there are those that, that, that brag about the quote-unquote decisions for Christ in the meeting. I remember one pastor relating how he was uh, reading a publication from a certain mission which was boasting of its tremendous results in a certain foreign land. And they showed a picture of the vast crowd that had gathered to hear their evangelist. And as the, the pastor was looking at that picture, he noticed something strange. Here was a gal in a hat over here, and here was another gal in a hat just like it here. And here was a man who had his legs crossed, and here's a man over here on this side who had his legs crossed the same way. And as they examined the picture, the, they had duplicated the picture, put them side by side to double the crowd. 
that was there to hear the guy preach, see? That kind of stuff goes on, even among some of God's people, and I believe that it disgraces God to stench to him when we boast about converts and numbers. Don't misunderstand me. I thank God for every convert. And when numbers represent individuals whose lives are changed by the grace of God, and when we baptize people and it's an indication of their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and their desire to walk in newness of life, we rejoice in that. But God forbid we should ever get the numbers out there and boast about numbers. That doesn't please God. That's what these false teachers wanted to do. Paul says, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about that which is an offense to the world, the cross. Then back up a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This may blow your mind. Here's a third thing that we may justly boast about. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle relates this thorn in the flesh that he received and how that he prayed three times that God would remove it. In verse 9, he gives the Lord's response. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And now the apostle's response is, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my strengths. Is that what he says? Does he say, I'm going to boast about my strong points? No. He says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. If you and I are going to boast about anything concerning ourselves, let it be boasting about our weaknesses. Why? Because then, as people observe our lives, they're going to see the power of God evident in those areas of our lives. Why is it unpopular to boast about weaknesses? Well, in the first place, it runs contrary to the world, which boasts only about strengths and hides weaknesses. But secondly, because when we boast about our weaknesses, it means that we have to be transparent and allow people to see us as we really are. And we were vulnerable, and that's scary. That's exactly what the apostle says. I'm going to boast about those things that are weak about me so that when people see my life, they will notice the power of God and not me. I praise God for that. If we're going to boast, let it be in the Lord or in the cross of Christ or in our weakness. But, going back to our text, let it not be in our good works. Boasting of one's own goodness is not allowed before God. It is forbidden. He says, where is boasting? It is excluded. By what law of works? No. If the principle of works were involved, then people would boast about what they did. You know, if you and I got to heaven because of something we achieved or accomplished in this life, when we get to heaven, it would be simply a, an eternity of comparisons. We would walk around with our list of what we had done and everybody else would have their list and we would be bragging about what we did and how we did better than they or whatever. And God will have none of that in heaven. Where is boasting then in our own goodness? It's ruled out. The door is shut by the law of faith. Warren Worsby in his book on, on Romans says that it's like the rescued swimmer who was drowning. He doesn't brag 
that he had faith to hang on to the lifeguard. When you and I understand that we are sinking in our sin and lost and helpless, that all we've done is reached out by faith and trusted the Savior, we have nothing to brag about in ourselves, but we brag in the one who saved us. You see, when we're saved, it's like a beggar coming to the king. And with nothing in his hands, he reaches out and the king puts what he needs into his possession. That's what salvation is. It's simply receiving what God has to offer. Oh, there's a place for good works, but not as the cause for salvation, rather as the, the overflow of it, the results of it. Quote with me, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Not by works, lest man should boast, but it goes on to say, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works. God has created us in Christ so that we may now perform good works, having been justified by faith alone. We see this illustrated in a parable that Jesus told. I'd like for you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Jesus told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. That was next to nothing, if not nothing, in the society in Israel in that day to be a tax collector. <clears throat> he says, The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. That's very well put. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Jesus goes on to say, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, and was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. When he says, Be merciful to me, he literally says, Be propitious to me. If you were here last week, you remember that term. We studied propitiation. He's not just asking God to show mercy, but he's saying, God, show mercy to me because of the blood that is shed as an atoning sacrifice for my sin. Now today we don't have to pray this prayer because that atoning sacrifice has been made once and for all in Jesus Christ. But you see the attitude we do need today. For one cries out to God for mercy and sees nothing in himself whereby he deserves to be saved. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house, what? Justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exhausted. God will have no flesh glory in his presence. You know, it bothers me sometimes when I hear certain testimonies. 
which in subtle ways promote and exalt the testifier. I guess I think particularly those testimonies where the person gets up and tells how bad he was before he was saved and he drags out this grocery list of sins. And the way it comes across, it almost sounds as though he's bragging about all the things he did before he got saved. You know, he, he lived a moral life before he was five years old. On down the list, exaggerating sin after sin. and Then he concludes his but God saved me, and he sits down. And The real thrust of the testimony was not the grace of God and how good God is, but seems to be more of all the bad things he did. He promotes himself in some subtle way. And then there are those who think that a testimony is only really worth hearing when it's given by some evangelical superstar, some person out of Hollywood or out of the athletic world. That's a real testimony. That's the one that's really worth hearing and excludes or at least overlooks the testimony of the common person. God is not pleased with that, folks. When you and I testify, whether we be a superstar or like most of us here, the, the common person, in our testimonies, let us bring glory to God. Where is boasting? It is excluded. Question number two. Is God the God of Jews and Gentiles? Well, you have to put yourself in the place of a Jew to appreciate that question. <clears throat> That's hard for us to do. Most of us are Gentiles. We say, well, of course God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. What else? Well, you've got to put yourself back in a first century Jewish mindset. For centuries, the Jews had been taught, you are an elect people, you are separated from the nations. You worship the true God, they worship false gods. That was true. So now along comes this gospel that Paul is proclaiming, and he says it's for Jew and Gentile, that now in the eyes of God in this age, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The God we worship is the God of Jews and Gentiles. And the Jew says, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're trying to tell me that that Gentile doesn't even have to become a Jew before he becomes a Christian? Paul says, that's right. That Gentile, uncircumcised, having followed the pagan religion of his forefathers, can trust Jesus Christ and be in the family of God without ever coming through the door of Israel. And the Jew shakes his head. It's hard for him to comprehend. Now maybe I can, can create some kind of a parallel that's not a parallel, but we'll, we'll, I hope, help you understand the difficulty that this presented to the Jewish mind. Let's suppose that there was some fellow that came into the church this morning and got up here in the pulpit and said to you, I have an announcement to make. <clears throat> we have blessed news. The God that we Christians worship is the same God that the Muslims worship. We just call them by different names. Your God and the God of Allah is the same God, and God has further revealed himself through Muhammad, his prophet, and we're worshiping the same God. Well, what would be your response? Well, we probably would throw the bum out on his ear, in love, of course. We would totally reject that. 
That doesn't square with the scriptures. It's not true. But you see, if you carry that back to the Jewish mind, that's sort of how the Jew looked at it. When the apostle came along and said that God's the God of the Jew and the Gentile, it was hard for him to receive. But the blessed truth is that God is the God of all nationalities. And God has a certain relationship to all men, despite race or culture. He is the creator of all men, for example. He is the provider for all men, whether they realize it or not. In his providence, he provides rain and the seasons and food and so on for all men. He's the judge of all men, again, whether mankind realizes it or not. So he has a certain relationship to all peoples, but he is not the savior of all men, regardless of their attitude toward him. He is the savior only of those who believe. Now there are those who promote the lie that we all worship one God and just call him by different names. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And he did not say but by me and Muhammad and Buddha and others, etc. He said, no man comes to the Father but by me. Biblical Christianity is an exclusive religion. It claims to be the only way to God. You see, just as God is one, so the way to God is one. I'm reminded of the unbelieving apostate seminary professor who teaches in the classroom and who says that Christ is the better way of salvation. A missions professor to top it off. Christ is not the better way of salvation because that implies there are alternatives. He is the only way of salvation. God is one. And he has one way by which we come into relationship with him as Savior. That is through faith. That's what the Apostle says. That it is justification by faith. Over to Timothy he writes, There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. And that's why he writes here, he will justify the circumcised, the Jew, and the uncircumcised, the Gentile, through faith. That's the only way we come to God. Is that where your trust and your hope is today? Or are you in some way still trusting in your birth? You say, well, I'm an American. I was born into a Christian country. Were you? Nonetheless, your birth does not influence God. You say, well, I've been a good boy. I've tried hard. I may not have kept all the Ten Commandments, but I think I've kept most of them. Not only are you wrong, you are self-deceived. Yes, but I, I may not have been religious too much, but uh, I, I was confirmed. I went through these certain rituals in my church. My friend, God justifies only on the basis of faith, apart from works. Faith alone recommends the soul to God. And if today your faith and your trust is in anything or anyone but Jesus Christ, you're lost. 
even if you're trusting 99% in Jesus Christ and only 1% in your good works, you are lost. Our total faith, 100% of our faith, must be in Jesus Christ and his finished work on our behalf at the cross. We are justified by faith alone. Question number three. Maybe the most difficult of them. Certainly to the Jews. He says, do we nullify the law through faith? Do you understand what's in the Jewish mind here? I mean, the law was his boast. This was his covenant with God. And now Paul comes along and over and over again he preaches and writes, apart from the law, without the law, justified by faith alone. And so the Jew says, yes, but wait a minute, what about the law? Does this message of the gospel nullify the law? The Jews accused Paul of saying that when he was arrested in the temple prior to his being sent to Rome. The accusation leveled against him by the mob was, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, Jews, and the law. They said he preaches against the law. Is that true? No. The apostle makes it clear here that the gospel message of justification by faith does not contradict the law. On the other hand, he says, it establishes the law. How is that? Well, think with me a moment. What was the purpose of the law? This is not a complete answer, but I'm going to give you a threefold answer as to why God gave the law. Number one, to reveal his holiness and righteousness to man. You see, God's moral perfections are revealed in the Ten Commandments and in other aspects of the law. The law demands perfect righteousness if a man is going to be right with God. The law reveals how pure God is. God is light and in him is no what? No moral darkness at all. That's what the law does. Secondly, the law shows the awfulness of man's sin. In fact, the very existence of the law says that there is sin. If there were no sin, you wouldn't need law, would you? We wouldn't have to have laws in this country. There wouldn't have to be laws against murder and rape and stealing if everybody was perfect. We just write them off the books. Perfect society. But we have laws in this country because man is a sinner. And that's why God gave the Ten Commandments to expose the sinfulness of man. In chapter 7 of this very book, the apostle will testify that he would not have known what covetousness is if God's law hadn't said to him, you shall not covet. Now it wasn't the law made him a coveter. It was that the law turned the light on and he saw for the first time what covetousness is. He was practicing covetousness. You put a speed limit sign out here that says 35 miles an hour, it doesn't make a person a speeder. It simply exposes his speeding, you see. You say, thou, you will not commit murder in this state. 
Does that make a person a murderer? No, it simply exposes his deed if he does it. That's the purpose of the law. It exposes the awfulness of man's sin. And thirdly, I would say that the purpose of the law was to bring then the sinner to God's provision for his sin. Now in the Old Testament, what that meant was that the Jew would bring a sacrifice to the temple. The blood would be shed and offered up in the prescribed way and his sin would be atoned for. We don't do that today. You didn't bring a lamb or a pigeon to church with you this morning because the great sacrifice for all ages has been offered by Jesus Christ. Now the purpose of the law is to reveal God's holiness, to expose my sin, and to bring me to the Savior. In Galatians, the apostle says that the law is our school teacher to bring us to Christ. Now, when a man trusts Christ, what does he do? Well, in the first place, he is recognizing God's holiness and God's righteousness. Then he is seeing himself as he really is before a holy God, helpless and sinful. He is confessing Christ as the one who bore the law's penalty as his substitute. What is he doing? Well, he is simply vindicating the law. He is saying that the law did its work. It brought me to Christ. And so you see this doctrine that we teach of justification by faith honors the law in its justice and its demand for righteousness. When we say that it establishes the law, I want to emphasize it does not mean that we're under the law. We've been delivered from it, but it still doesn't work in our hearts. When I say this, I am not saying either that the law has any power in itself to transform the heart. It doesn't. A person can memorize and quote every day the Ten Commandments and never be a Christian. But what the law does is to prepare our hearts for the gospel message so that we see our need and see God's provision. It concerns me when I hear some people talk about their testimony and I see that in some subtle ways they are expressing faith in works. I think William Newell puts it this way uh, and puts it well when he writes these words in his commentary. If God announces the gift of righteousness apart from works, why do you keep mourning over your bad works and failures? Do you not see that it is because you still have hopes in those works of yours that you are depressed and discouraged by their failure? If you truly saw and believed that God is reckoning righteous the ungodly who believe on him, you would fairly hate your struggles to be better. For you would see that your dreams of good works have not at all commended you to God, and that your bad works do not at all hinder you from believing on him that justifies the ungodly. Therefore, on seeing your failures, you should say, I am nothing but a failure, but God is dealing with me on another principle altogether than my works, good or bad. A principle not involving my works, but based only on the work of Christ for me. As we bring this message to its conclusion, I wonder if that's where your faith is today, in Christ alone. If in 1% you find yourself 
trusting in your works, thinking that somehow, though you're trusting Christ, your goodness is still going to commend you to God, then today flee and repent from that way of thinking and recognize that salvation, that justification, that being made right with God comes by faith in Jesus Christ and by faith alone. I want to make this application to us Christians. In what or in whom is your boast? As you review this past week that you've lived through, have those around you been aware that your boast is in Christ and in Him crucified? Or have you boasted in your accomplishments or claimed your rights pushed for your recognition and your strengths and your sufficiency. You see, my friend, the only boast that we should have is our boast in the Lord. We need to choose to die to self-sufficiency and self-boasting, to turn away from our wisdom, our might, and our riches as a source of pride, and to see our boasting as being alone in Jesus Christ. Will you boast in him this week and point others to him? Will you choose to die to self? Will you choose to boast in your weaknesses, be vulnerable and transparent? You know, most people out there in the world think of a Christian as somebody who's perfect, who's got it all together, who doesn't have any problems, Do you know why they think that way? Because that's the act that we put on. That's the impression that we try to give. And it's wrong, isn't it? I've never met a Christian yet who had everything put together in his life. So instead of putting on a masquerade out in the world, let's be what we really are by the grace of God. And if we must boast in anything about ourselves, let it be a boasting in our weaknesses, being transparent so that as God's power then is made real in our lives, people will know that glory belongs to him and not to what we are. Boast in the Lord. Bring glory to him this week. And now, Father, I pray that that will be very practically applied to my life and to the life of every Christian here today. I'm aware that as I talk, there are some of us who are living in sin, out of the will of God. I pray, Father, that those of us who know Christ, every one of us will today be in that place of obedience where we can know your blessing. I pray that you'll call back to a place of fellowship that Christian who's wasting his life living in sin, who's priding himself in his accomplishments and his sufficiency and his riches. I pray that today there will be a renewed humility before the cross, that there will be a dying to self and the pushing for one's own rights and a yieldedness to God. And I pray for that friend who's here today without Christ altogether. 
that today that one will know the meaning of these words being justified by faith alone. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to close by singing a hymn. As we do this, it is an opportunity for you to make a public response as the Spirit of God would lead you. It may be that you today would want to make a public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ and you want to come forward just like Jesus called all of his disciples publicly. You want to come forward and in so doing say before men, today I am trusting Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. I'm not ashamed to say it. As a Christian, you may need to come today and say before God and before your brothers and sisters, I've been away from the Lord, wasting my life living in sin, but today I want to come back to the Lord and be faithful and obedient. I'm coming today to give myself afresh and anew to Christ, that he may be the Lord of my life. Or it may be that you want to come in a commitment for church membership or some other desire, but if the Spirit of God is wooing your heart and tugging with it today, I pray, God, that you will do what you need to do in this hour to be in obedience to him. We're going to sing together number 298, which pretty well summarizes what we've been talking about. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. Only trust him now. Let's stand as we sing together. I wait right here in the front. You slip out and come if we can help you. <clears throat>